Good morning, it's DJ and PK. It's 97.5 and 12.80 The Zone. Welcome in on a Tuesday morning. All right, yesterday we spent a lot of time talking about Michael Jordan, The Last Dance, 10-part documentary, and now it's all over. But now ESPN's got some 30 for 30s coming up, which is really the brand they control more. The Last Dance was done more in association with some other partners who basically tracks back to Michael Jordan. (laughs) You can say whatever you want, but basically, Jordan had more of a hand in this than most people get in the 30 for 30 documentaries. I mean, you always have a little bit of a say because you don't have to cooperate. You don't have to do the interviews for it. So if they they want to interview you for it, then, uh uh-oh, you're going to have some cooperation. So the question now is, what do you want to see next? And the one next Sunday, they're doing one on Lance Armstrong. Zero interest. I don't, I, I don't want to see it. I don't, I don't care. He took a lot of roids. Great. They're doing one on McGuire and Sosa. Do I want to watch that? Maybe a little, because, you know, in my life, I've watched a lot more baseball than I have watched cycling. Uh, but still, they did a lot of roids. They were good players, but they were roided up. That's why they hit the 60 homers. Now, that brings a lot of publicity and maybe there's some stories there about, you know, being in the glare of the public spotlight, but still, I'm just kind of shrugging. What would really capture your imagination? What do you want to see get the, uh, the last dance treatment? What do you want to see get the, um, you know, a, a real 30 for 30 deep dive? I've, I've seen some really good 30 for 30s. There's a lot of them out there. I've said multiple times that the one on the Pacers-Knicks rivalry, now neither of those teams win a championship, but the rivalries were intense. The personalities were big. The celebrity, you know, Ewing, Reggie Miller, uh, you got to throw in Spike Lee. It, it was a very good story, well told. They had multiple playoff series. It was great. So that, that was really good. Uh, what would you like to see get that treatment? There's a, um, there's a 30 for 30 on a story. Uh, when I first started watching soccer, the 1994 World Cup, really, <laughs> you really couldn't watch much soccer before that. The U.S. played Colombia, and uh, there was an own goal. Colombia scored an own goal, and it was the difference, and the U.S. won the game. And the player who scored it, uh, was killed outside a nightclub a, a couple weeks later. And it tracks back, the, the whole thing tracks back to uh, how much drug money influences the game in certain parts of the world, including Colombia in that era. And it was so well done. It was an excellent, excellent documentary. The interviews they got with the, the player's fiance, uh, the player's sister, um, the video of the time, they just it was unbelievable reporting. So, so well done. It was it was very good. Um, uh, there've been some good some good uh, football thirty for thirties they've done as well. The story about Marcus Dupree. What an interesting guy. Just an unassuming country guy who burst on the scene at Oklahoma. Had some injuries as a pro. It never worked out, and uh, and now he's he's doing the nine to five grind now. That was a very good documentary. So what do you want to see? What stories do you want told? These are going to be done. They are, uh, let's face it, it's all about money, right? And they are expensive to do the documentaries, but 
in the digital world, you can make them always available and you can uh, put them on TV in downtimes and that kind of pushes the brand out there, right? It's great marketing. And then they're always available digitally. So, I mean, this, if you miss some of the Jordan stuff, I'm sure ESPN is going to rerun it. There's, it's already, they've already been rerunning episodes. Uh, but it's also available digitally, so you can just sit down and binge watch it, you know, at your convenience sometime. Um, I think, though, the easy answer here is that, and I don't think they have the access they got with Jordan where they put the camera in for the year, um, but you don't quite have to cut the deal they cut with Jordan because now teams are shooting their own stuff all the time. Let's face it, Brady, Belichick, and the Patriots, we'd all watch it. Now, it's a little too soon. You know, Jordan didn't let them do the documentary right away. And that's part of the beauty of it. I took a class in college. Mostly, I took real classes, and I really had to study. A couple times, I took classes that were known to be easy that I thought would be interesting and or easy. (laughs) There were a couple. And one of them, I took a class on the history of pop culture, which is, you know, that just feels like a big old softball. Uh, But there were some interesting things about how culture reflects the times. They did really interesting lectures on music, how music speeds up and slows down. And it does it in reaction to what's happening in society. It was really interesting. You know, people who lived through the drama of the Depression and World War II, they don't need the music to rev up. They need Doris Day and a little ballad. They just need to be calm because they've had enough drama. And then you get to the 50s and the 60s and you start getting people who don't, didn't live all that drama and they want some energy and some excitement. And what happens? Elvis happens. The Beatles happen. The stones happen. Then you get Watergate, Vietnam, civil rights, people getting beaten down. And man, by the time you get through all that drama, 65, the assassinations in 68, into the early 70s, music slows down again. And you get the Captain and Tennille. <laughs> and then you get a little ways away from that. You get into the 80s and music speeds up. It was really interesting. And the thing that applies to sports and Jordan and the uh, last dance is that we like to remember what happened a generation ago. And a generation is basically 20 years. Now, I'm taking college classes in the 80s. So they're looking at pop culture of the 70s and saying, look, it all reflects the 50s. MASH comes out in the 70s, 20 years after the, after the war in Korea. Um, Happy Days goes to number one, and it's a show about the 50s, right? And it's built on a uh, movie that was about the 50s that came out in the 70s. Um, it just it goes on and on. Jordan was 20 years later. In the 90s, The Wonder Years, great sitcom, very well crafted. If you ever have a chance to binge watch The Wonder Years, it captures the 70s. 20 years later, people love to go back. American Graffiti. Does that movie work if it's made in the 90s about the 50s? Probably not. In the 60s, it was too soon. In the 70s, it was a huge hit. So what happened 20 years ago you want to see? Look at, look at what we're seeing here on consecutive weeks on ESPN. Jordan, 20 years ago. Lance Armstrong, 20 years ago. Sosa McGuire, 22 years ago. I mean, it's amazing. So I don't think the Brady-Belichick thing, which I think is the best comparison to Jordan. I think that's the one everybody wants to watch. Um, The fact is, I'm enough of a hardcore. 
I would love to watch uh, these kind of documentaries on elite NFL teams, especially when they're changing quarterbacks because they're the big personalities. If you gave me a documentary on the Niners and it went through Montana Young, now you need all of Montana and the four Super Bowls leading up, Young being there for the last two, the inevitability because of the difference in age, there's going to be a passing of the baton at some point. Montana gets hurt, goes to KC, goes to an AFC title game. Young battling the Cowboys and, the, and finally getting the Super Bowl. That would be great. And I think you could turn around and do the same thing on the Packers because you got all of that with Favre, well, not the four Super Bowls, but he went to 2-1-1, and, and then the handoff to Aaron Rodgers. I think those would be great. I could absolutely watch those. Uh, Hit us up on Facebook with yours, DJ and PK. All right, we're going to take a break. Uh, When we come back, a little baseball with Dale Murphy. What's it going to take to get the return of baseball? How is it going to look? And when's it going to happen? Well, we'll talk with Dale Murphy next. Stay with us. Take the zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of the zone as well as podcast editions of every show. From Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo, wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280, The Zone, and The Zone Sports Network. DJ, PK, and Dale Murphy joins us once again, former National League MVP for the Atlanta Braves. Dale, good morning. Welcome back to the show. How you doing, guys? Good, to, good. Good to talk to you. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Well, thanks for coming on. We appreciate it. Uh, we're seeing baseball slowly uh, build up here and try to plan. You know how they're going to come back. And there's an argument over money, which I'm sure doesn't surprise you. There've been a few arguments over money that have shaped baseball history. But aside from the money thing having to be ironed out, I'm curious as someone who. Played baseball, and you've heard all the news of the last couple months, you know, what's more dangerous, what's less dangerous, what do you have to worry about? In your mind, aside from the money, what's the biggest hurdle to getting baseball back? Well, just <laughs> that's, a, that's a great question. What, it's just the nature of this, uh, the, the virus. How the, I've seen some of the ideas, and it's um, – the, the just the, the how how are you going to protect everybody and you know what's going to happen uh, if someone does get sick they they do have plans I mean but it's it, there's just so many uh, logistical uh, issues and all the states all the cities got to be you know good with it as well I I haven't you know I've heard Florida and Arizona are fine but you know I haven't heard about other states but. Uh, you know, um, I think uh, as a player, I, you know, I like what I hear so far. I would, I don't know what I would do if I missed a whole year of competitive baseball. Um, I know it used to be done with guys like Ted Williams, who you know, who were in the service, and you missed a few years. Um, it's just remarkable, remarkable to me that that he was able to do that, and others as well. But for me, if I missed a year in in the middle of and not competitive baseball, I I would be thinking about what I was going to do this winter, try to go play somewhere or something. Uh, but I think just the logistics of, of everybody safe and and uh, you know it, it's just the, the nature of this thing is is so 
strange. You know, you could, as everybody knows, you could not have symptoms, you know, and uh, and have it. It's just the most unusual thing, uh, and it affects people different ways, and and it, it's uh, so contagious that that's the problem as well. I, I don't know how if one person gets gets it in Major League Baseball, I, I, there's, there's going to be a little uh, you know breakout. It, it seems like it's just so contagious. What do you think of the possibilities of having a universal DH and then combining and don't have the traditional American National Leagues and going by regions? Well, as far as those kinds of ideas are concerned, I'm up, I'm up for all of it. I, as a player, I, I wouldn't care what, what they did. I just would want to get out there and play. I don't care if anybody's in the stands. I just I just would want to play if it's a DH in the National League, which I think is going to happen eventually anyway. And the different I, – I wouldn't care. I, and as far as a fan as well, I'll, I'll, whatever they put out there, because it makes – it'll be kind of interesting. Shortened season will make games uh, that much more important or urgent. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I'm I'm up for all of that. Uh, you know they've got expanded rosters and everything. Every they've looked like they've thought of everything. Um, you know, I I'd be fine with anything. I I, I wouldn't care. Um, you know, but you know some of these things. Personally, I'm in favor of realignment anyway. Huge realignment and uh, kind of like they were talking in the original thing, just geographical divisions. And I, I think that'd be great for baseball anyway. I think they should do that sooner rather than later, you know, without the issues we got going on right now. So I get a lot of the wisdom of it, and I know a lot of it. This will shock you. It's done because of money, and it's done because of TV. And, you know, when the Dodgers are playing on the East Coast, that means a 4.30 start in L.A., and who's in front of their TV, right? Everybody's going to be stuck on the freeway for the next two hours. So I, I get why they want games, you know, when the Dodgers are on the road, they want the game to start at 7 or 7.30. So I get all that. But I wonder from a player's perspective, when you fly a lot less miles, will that have an impact on the quality of game over the time? Or will we not see it because it'll impact everybody and it won't make a difference? But would it, would it make a difference in how you felt? Uh, it's, <laughs> It's a good question, and there's, there's, yeah. Well, I, I think you know, less travel, definitely. I think you know, I, I, I think they should realign anyway, just because travel reasons. I think you'll see, uh, you know, a, a probably better quality of play uh, in in this situation here. Um, yeah, I think it's it, it'd really be advantageous, uh, you know, not to travel that much. Um, you know, it, it, what's what's going to be interesting though? Did you guys happen to watch the the golf match yesterday? I mean, it, it was kind of interesting to me. I, I didn't see a lot of comment on it, but I, I didn't think they played that well. <laughs> I, the, the the little that I watched, and so my point is, I, I think it's really going to be interesting when and if we get baseball back. It, you know, what what are we going to see out there? Are guys, really going to be ready? I mean. You know, uh, ready to go. Is, is it going to be a little off? Uh, I, personally, I think it's going to be a little, just a little off. They've missed so much time. You know, it's just, and, and it's going to go longer than this. I missed 56 games with a strike in, uh, you know, in 81. And, you know, we just kind of picked up where we left off and, and, and got going. This is, this is just so unusual. It's really hard to predict. So I, I'm a little worried 
generally speaking, about the quality of play right at the beginning. What, what are we going to see? So Tampa Bay pitcher Blake Snell comes out, and I don't know if you saw it. I'll just read you a little snippet. i got to get my money. I'm not playing unless I get mine, okay? That's just the way it is for me. I mean, I get his point as far as the risks, but how does the public perceive that? Well, I don't it, – it's, it's – <laughs> You just see it time and time again with athletes. Uh, I, I don't, you know, if you feel that way, fine. Just go to your player rep. Go to the, the head of the, the association. Um, you know, just, just you, you cannot, players, the work stoppages, which is the only thing I can compare this to, is, uh, is uh, um, you're never going to win the PR battle. People will be upset at that remark if that's the way you feel that's fine but any kind of public comment like that just just will never ever go over really well and uh uh you know it's it's fine you know you people want to get paid that's fine but it doesn't help the situation at all um because number one you're not going to win the pr battle as a player anyway you know, like I said, I've been through strikes before, and people don't want to hear it. They don't care about that. And especially in a situation like this, I, I just don't understand what he was, uh, you know, some, he, he just didn't understand how it would be perceived. You know, fine if you feel that way, but publicly coming out in a situation like this where I don't know how much money he's already made in his career, um, but people aren't going to have a lot of sympathy for him and understand it. Uh, uh, but I understand getting paid for your services. That's the way, you know, we work here. But these things are never, ever uh, work stoppages. Like I said, is the only thing I can compare it to. They, they never work out arguing your, your position in public. It just will not be accepted, uh, uh, you know, by the general public. And, you know, it, it doesn't help situations. So you don't, you don't need to say things like that publicly. You know, just it, it, those things are just always best. You know, if you want to be, in fact, go to the meetings. Uh, you know that. Well, it's a little hard right now, but that's what we we're always told. You go to the meetings and say what you want to say. You know, any player can go to any meetings, any negotiation situation. They're always welcome. You know, and and voice your opinion as strongly as you want. There must be a Zoom meeting he can go to. I get your point about getting on a plane right now. That's probably nobody's first choice. Yeah. But you could definitely yeah, right. Zoom. I, everything's different now. But I'm just saying, when we had work stoppages, they always said every player can go to any meeting. There's no confidential meeting. It's weird now. This is this is a really strange time. And, and the other thing is social media with your comments. I'm not saying back in the day guys didn't have strong opinions about, you know, uh, free agency or salary caps or anything like that. It's just it didn't get the publicity things get now. So I'm curious. I'm, I assume that batters, if you're hitting, you're going to get back in the groove quicker than a pitcher is going to build up his arm. I am assuming we're going to see managers have to use a lot of pitchers. They're not going to be able to ride the best guys for as many innings, which means we ought to see more scoring. And somebody, a modern-day version of yourself, ought to be licking his chops right now. Am I, am I right or am I off base on that? <laughs> well, personally, it took me, you know, it took me a little, that's, it took me a little while to get going and to get my timing. I mean, there were other hit. There's most most guys, and I think these young players today, 
have really played so much baseball that uh, I, I don't think it'll. I, I agree with your point there. These guys will probably be ready to go. The hitters will be ready to go. Pitchers probably be a little behind. In normal situations, spring training, you know, it takes a little bit uh, for hitters to catch up. But um, I, I think to the the bigger point of the quality of the game, it, it's it, it's it's going to be really interesting to watch. And uh, that's what I'll be watching is you know how, how are the guys. Because the longer we go on, everybody's going to get a little messed up. And that's what I think eventually they're going to, you know, they're talking about maybe, you know, playing 60 games at the end of the year, at the end of the season. I'm, I'm still in favor of it, but I, I think um, we're just, we're just going to – I'm really curious is the quality of the play. It's just is – baseball is not a game where you can take this kind of time off. I know they're going to allow a little uh, – little, uh, "Quote unquote spring training before you get ready, but it just it doesn't work like that, you know. And I think it does compare to golf. Um, I, I'm, those guys were playing well yesterday, but they seemed a little off and didn't have caddies, and you know, it, it just it, was, it seemed like a little bit. It was a little off, and I, I wonder if when baseball starts, is it just going to be, you know, a little different? Which I think it will be. But again, as a fan, I'm up for anything. Me too, that's for sure, Dale. I agree with you 100% there. I'm just starving for it, and it's just weird not to have it. I better be able to watch uh, baseball on July 4th, or I'm, I'm just going to pull my hair out, because every July 4th, man, I'm eating hot dogs, I'm watching baseball, and I'm watching fireworks. And if we don't have that, it's going to be freaking crazy to me. I just can't stand it, the thought, the thought of that happening. I wanted to ask you something. Mm-hmm. I saw something on social media. I don't know. I think it were with, you were with a couple other players, or former players, and you're talking about... Uh, the game and how the game used to be, you know, speed was such a big uh, aspect of the game. And you were talking about if speed was emphasized today, that Acuna Jr., the budding star for the Braves, would be like a 40-80 guy or something along those lines. And, you know, now we know it's about launch angle. Bellinger, uh, he and I, we both played, Bellinger and I both played high school baseball and we combined to hit one home run in our high school uh, senior year, and I had zero. So that should let you know how many Bellinger had. And now he's hitting all these home runs. Do you think that this this way of which we're here, the way the game is being played now, is here to stay? Are we going to go through another revolution or maybe go back to the way it was? What do you foresee for the game going forward? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Uh, speed was emphasized a little bit more in the 80s and, and early 90s, I think, uh, for a number of a couple of reasons, main reasons. We had a lot more AstroTurf. We had fields. Uh, someone once said, and I, I agree with this, they didn't like AstroTurf, but they liked the game it created. And what that creates is you need speed. You've got to cover the ground. You've got to cover a, a lot of space in the outfield. And if the ball goes into the gap, you, you gotta, someone's got to get it quicker. Uh, and it, 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 the, the ballparks were a little bigger. And so you had an AstroTurf field with, with a bigger ballpark. It doesn't pay to have a bunch of home run hitters. And so it created a faster team. Uh, the other thing, um, and, and analytics, uh, they looked at the stolen base and, and the analytics said, say that it doesn't statistically work out to take the gamble. And so it, they just shut it down. And then launch angle did create guys trying to hit more home runs. 
So the, the game's different. Your question is whether it's going to go back. I don't think it's sustainable to strike out at, at this rate. Um, we don't see teams winning a World Series that every guy strikes out 100 times. You know what I'm saying? I'm Not every guy, but yeah. if you lead the league in strikeouts, um, the, the teams that make more contact are still winning. You know, and so... Uh, you get a guy on third base in, in, in the playoffs, and everybody says, well, yeah, ground ball would be good right here to score the run. Well, they haven't done that all year. You know, They've been going for the home run, and now runs are at a premium. And so I, to, to your question, are we going to see a revolution? Maybe not a revolution, but they just can't put up with every guy striking out so much. That's the other thing that that the home run and launch angle has created that has not been good for the game. There's no question about it. hasn't been good. So how would you be, and maybe if you're a young player trying to make it, you'd be, you'd be okay with it, but someone walks up to you and, you know, they look too much like me or PK and they don't look like they've ever played sports at a high level. And they tell you, you have to do this and this and this, and you have to stop doing that, that, and that. It seems like when the bean counter accountant uh, stat geek tells you that, it would make some guys' heads explode. Yeah, I'm sorry. You cut out a little bit there, uh, uh, DJ. When when they say which which so when, stat when, now? When when any of the analytics guys who maybe clearly never played the game come up oh, to oh, an I athlete yeah. and tell you you have to do this and stop doing that. I don't know how much of that you had to hear in your career, but I'm just thinking it would make some guys' heads explode. Well, to answer your question, never. (laughs) (laughs) No one ever said, hey, look at these analytics. I mean, first of all, it's obvious. We didn't didn't have it. But there was kind of a – I'm not saying we were totally right, but the game we were playing was different, which I think is better. I think it was more entertaining because you have – there's more things going on. the bunt, the sacrifice bunt. Yeah, statistically, they're they're right, and it doesn't always work out statistically, but never. And the same thing with a stolen base or a hit and run. Yeah, statistically, you don't want to do it too much, but never. And and it just creates, you know, a different game. Personally, it, yeah, that would be very frustrating because, uh, uh, again. Uh, there, there's things that, that happen on the field that, that, that analytics just don't, you know, you need a guy to make contact. But what statistically what it says is contact is not that valuable. You know, we'd rather have you strike out. I mean, it's just so strange, you know, because they're saying you, you'll hit into too many double plays or you need to see more pitches because you've got to tire this guy out. And so, some of it is just, uh, um, I, I think one thing that's interesting, I can't remember which club, but they, they hired a, um, I can't remember what his title was. Uh, it was a coach to better, uh, uh, it's like a liaison between the coaching staff and the analytics guys because a lot of the coaches don't quite understand what all the analytics say. So there's another coach, one team, has got a guy to to uh, be a liaison between everybody, so they all are talking on the same page. I'm not saying some analytics aren't aren't useful, um, but they're not all useful. 
I think is is what I'm saying is it's just it it just doesn't work that way. Sometimes uh, making contact, especially at the end of the season, is is better than striking out. Uh, you know, you get a guy on third, you want to hit a weak ground ball to second base so you can get that run in because runs are at a premium in the playoffs in the World Series. During the season, they're not at a premium, and that's what. If I was an analytics guy, I would analyze the playoffs in the World Series as opposed to what happens for the course of a year. You just get accumulation. But what happens in the playoffs in the World Series is you get a better pitching staff where contact, you're facing a better pitching staff where contact becomes critical. And uh, I know a team that was playing the Yankees a couple years ago, and the scouting report on the team was, Hey, if you get in trouble, get a guy on base or you get a guy on second. Don't, you know, don't pitch to this lineup because eventually someone's going to strike out. And so it's like, you know, everybody, everybody in the lineup strikes out 80 to 100 times. The, the accumulation of statistics during the course of the regular season, I just don't think translates to the playoffs and World Series. Dale, we appreciate a few minutes. Thanks for coming on and talking a little baseball, and hopefully it'll restart soon. PK needs it by the 4th of July. I'm a little more flexible, but still sooner rather than later. <laughs> well, I'm flexible too, but, but uh, you know, we're in a really weird time. we got to just, you know, you guys stay safe. Stay, you know, families hang in there. This is a real challenging time, but I think psychologically – even watching, like I said, the golf match yesterday, live sports is, is always a, a good diversion for the challenges of life. And hopefully we get it back, like you say, sooner rather than later. But I'm good with later, too, as long as we get it back. Thanks, Dale. Thanks, guys. All right, there's the former National League MVP, Dale Murphy. Love having him on the show. When we come back, our basketball insider, Steve Cleveland, stay with us. Take the zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of the zone as well as podcast editions of every show. From Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo, wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280, The Zone, and The Zone Sports Network. DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 1280, The Zone. We're joined now by our basketball insider, Steve Cleveland. Steve, good morning. Good morning. Well, now you've seen all 10 episodes of the Michael Jordan self-approved documentary, (laughs) The Last (laughs) Dance. Now, you had some interaction with him because, believe it or not, and if people missed this in a previous week, they can go back to listen to 1280thezone.com, but you told the story about Steve, about uh, Michael Jordan coming to Fresno and doing camps. And you had a, and Steve, you had a bunch of great stories there. So you knew him on one level, but did you learn anything about him in these 10 episodes you didn't know, or was it just the little glimpses of behind the scenes interaction that cracked you up? You know, uh, yeah, yeah I mean, certainly there was a lot of things I had not seen or, or heard in, in terms of the, the team and the coaches and the experiences or many of those things, though, uh, today, you know, without, you know, there wasn't a lot of social media back then. There wasn't, you know, the internet like there is today and there wasn't Twitter and Instagram and, and, uh, because all of this would have been way more transparent. Uh, 
if there had been. And we would have known much more about this story than we, we learned after the fact. But I, th- I think the, 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 the thing that just reinforced with me that it didn't matter what he was involved in. He, he was the most competitive person that I had ever been around. And, and not always in a negative way, in, in a positive way as well. I mean, he could still make you feel good beat, beating you in something, whether it was playing tennis or ping pong or shooting free throws, whatever it might have been. But his, his competitiveness was just off the charts. And, and that's one of the things that I maybe I, I kind of knew, but I learned to really, really, really appreciate in terms of uh, the, the trials and the challenges and all the things they're dealing with in such a public life. But he never lost that competitiveness, and that's what made him special. And uh, and, and to be honest with you, it uh, not to say that because I know that just listening to former players and guys that played against him, and uh, it, it wasn't always a pleasant experience. He wasn't a fun guy to be with all the time. It's probably especially in practices. But but looking back, it, it was those intangibles that he had, obviously talented very 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 talented and skilled and just an amazing guy but it was the intangibles that made him really special and do the things he did and and he was able to do that in a way that yeah probably upset his teammates at time but never to the point where they quit on him or gave up on him uh you know so collectively he would not only he was kind of like a player coach in some respects and 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 certainly they had great coaches there and uh how they handle things, but I look at Michael being the uh, the greatest example of a player-led team. He he's one, and you talk to coaches today and anybody, and you know that the best teams that you ever coached were player-led. It doesn't mean that you didn't set a foundation and for for to having a, a you know a wonderful culture and all of the expectations, setting goals and having role, everybody having a role and understanding that. But at the end of the day, the best teams are player-led teams. And Michael Jordan is the greatest example of that. I don't care if it's in business, sports, or whatever. His, his handprint was all over that uh, those six championships. So when you took over at BYU in the mid-'90s, it literally was at its worst shape that it had ever been in. It took you three or four years, and then you built that thing up, and then you won the conference tournament. You get in the NCAAs. I remember being there in the Thomas and Mac talking to you, and it was such a, such a struggle to get there, and you got there. And then you look at Jordan with the struggles of losing in the playoffs to whether it be the Celtics or the Pistons. And then obviously he got there at a higher level. But how much sweeter is it to get there when you finally get there after you've had the struggles and the process to get where you want to go? That's a great question because, you know what, every every job I ever had was kind of a rebuilding deal, whether it was a brand new high school or it was a junior college that was kind of had been decimated and, and, and BYU where they have a great history there. It was just circumstances and a situation that led to, to what happened. And even at Fresno state, the same thing. And I'm going to tell you that as I look back, I had to do an interview yesterday, kind of a face to face thing here in the community. And so I had, I was kind of in a reflective mood preparing for that. And that is the greatest satisfaction that I got from my coaching experience for 37 years is the opportunity to, to build and, and to see just the development of myself, the coaches, players, overcome, you know, 
I will just share this briefly. The greatest experience I ever had in coaching was in a team that won eight or nine games. And that was my first year at BYU. And uh, we, we had a hodgepodge of junior college guys, several of them, ton of walk-ons. A lot of the players that had been in the program the year before had gone on missions. So it was, it was a complete redo. And uh, that team fought and scratched. And I, I, I love that group of guys as much as I love any team I coached because they, they just bought in. And, and it was one of those deals where we're finishing the season. And, and you're going to remember this, Pat, because you were there. But we, we've won seven games. Yeah. I, think we're, I, I don't know exactly. We're probably 7-18, 7-19. I'm not sure what we were. And uh, we had met as a team in practice. And we were going on a road trip to play. At the time, I think New Mexico was 13th or 14th in the country. I'm going to go to UTEP and play coach. I'm going to coach Haskins, good teams there. But the idea was that, if you remember back in that WAC, there were 16 teams. Not everybody qualified for the tournament. And uh, so I can remember being with the team and telling them that, hey, we've got an opportunity here. There's still goals to be – there's a goal for us that to make this WAC tournament, you know, and – we had a great team meeting and had practice afterwards, came back in and getting ready to leave. And I, I, I just popped my head and I said, listen, we, we can do this. We can go there. We can, we can beat New Mexico. We have, you know, and, and I, I left the, the, the locker room and I thought, what in the heck are you talking to these kids about? You know, I mean, this is myself thinking, well, what are you thinking? You know, I mean, they've been struggling just to get through this thing and, so I walked, popped my head back in, and I said, we can do this. Get your mindset right. Well, as it turns out, we ended up having uh, a snowstorm, and we couldn't even fly out of Salt Lake to get to New Mexico. We had to take a, a bus to Vegas, fly out of Vegas, and it, ultimately we got into Albuquerque like at, I don't know, 1 or 2 in the morning. So there's no practice beforehand. There wasn't going to be a shooter, and I just felt like we needed to get sleep. So we show up at the arena about an hour early and get shots up. And anybody that's been to the pit knows that place is crazy. They had a good team and uh, 17,000 people there. We make like our first seven or eight shots in a row. Well, long story short, we're up like 20 at half, and, uh, which is incredible. And we're playing a ranked team with a, a hodgepodge of junior college guys that are just tough competitors. And just, you just love them to death because every day they bought it at practice. And, uh, and this was the day they started making baskets. At the first TV timeout, at the first TV timeout, we were like up two or three. I mean, they had made a run on us, and uh, we gathered, <laughs> gathered ourselves, called the timeout, and uh, that group of young people just did incredible things. Hung in there and hung in there. Danny Bowery, I remember a young man, he, was, he, he, he had some big threes. He was a junior college transfer from Rick's College. Anyway. We ended up winning that game, and it was incredible. It's like it was maybe a life-changing experience, and I, and I can remember going the next day and Coach Haskins coming out to my practice as we're doing a, a shoot-around at UTEP and, and sharing some things with me, and that may be for another day, but just shared some really special things for me as a coach. And then that night we beat them in triple overtime, and uh, it was uh, Lance Archibald hit a big three, McKelly hit a, a, a game-winner, and we, we sweep the road trip and go to the tournament. And so, yes, you know, when 
there isn't a lot of pressure on teams that are young and you're starting over. I understand the pressure comes when you start winning and then you, it's expected. So we, we didn't have to deal with that burden. But that was the most special experience I had as a coach at any level, a group of young men that uh, just had been put together at very late in the year and found a way to do one of the most special things I've ever experienced. And, you know, it's not like winning a championship or going to the tournament, but when you look at the circumstances and the environment, um, that's right at the top of my list. Steve Cleveland joining us here on 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. We always hear that coaches suffer the losses more than they enjoy the wins. So I thought of you watching the last episodes of The Last Dance because Jordan gets title number six, and in the locker room, he and Scottie Pippen are having a good laugh about the team being broken up, and they clearly in that moment are so into the championship. Everything is funny, and it doesn't drag them down at all. And Jordan at the piano, still in some champagne-soaked <laughs> jersey. And talk about staying in the moment. How come he can do it and most people can't, and is that a big part of what made him different and more successful? Yeah, I, I think it is. And you really, the special people, and not, I don't care if it's in the theater, music, sports, whatever, there are people that can be in the moment and stay in the moment and play at the highest level. And I'm, I'm not sure what the special sauce is for that or the formula for that. Uh, I, I think that is in your DNA, honestly. And when you see it, you've, you've all been around a lot of great athletes and see how people rise to the occasion and do special things in special moments. And, and we probably, and of course, you know, you, it, it becomes larger than life. And, and it probably puts a lot of pressure on people when they don't succeed and when they don't fail, when they don't, then there's comparisons made and, you know, they don't have this or they don't have that. But I think in Michael's, situation and I, I think you could look at every facet of life but you look at people that have kind of that that dna where they can in the moment be relaxed and know how to breathe and, and just just block everything out and make big baskets and make big plays uh, yeah that that's something very unique and special and that everybody doesn't have that in fact most people don't have that even, even success very very successful people it's a very elite group of people that have that in sport and uh, not that, that, you know, his teammates didn't have opportunities to, to do great things, and they did. You know, everybody kind of steps up and have moments. But people that consistently do that, well, that's really difficult. And, and you're right. I, I think that you, you mentioned early on in that comment that, you know, coaches take the losses harder than anyone. And, it, and that is the absolute truth. I mean, it's more, it's more relief. It's more relief. And, that, and that's when you know that, that you have to get your priorities straight again. I, I remember going through some of those times as a coach where there was an expectation to win and you're, maybe you're playing an opponent that's not supposed to beat you and, uh, and you end up beating them and you don't even enjoy the win. It's, it's, it's kind of like it's relief. Let's get on to the next one. And I, I know there were times in my life that, that that was a burden where I just felt like, what, what am I doing here? You know, I mean, if I can't enjoy this experience and it was more like, okay, let's get the game prep for the next, you know, you don't have time as you're playing a day later and you're playing somebody else. And when you really do reflect is sometimes uh, not even maybe, maybe you will at the end of the year and certainly take some time. But I can tell you this, being 10 years away from it, 
uh, or you know, eight, eight or eight or nine years away from it, uh, I can really reflect back now and appreciate what young men did, what coaches did, and uh, and and experience some of that joy because a lot of times during when you're in the battle in the heat of the moment, you're not. And uh, Michael was someone that seemed that he could he could be in the heat of the moment, the battle, and take time to really enjoy it and then get back on it. And But for coaches, it's much more difficult. How intoxicating and how much of a drug is winning? <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, it, the problem is that we live in a society that in, and in sports specifically that it's, that's, you're defined by that. And, and no, you know, that's not, it, that's not who we are. It's not, you know, sometimes coaches, players are misunderstood because of how they deal with the, you know, the win at all costs and, and when things don't go well. And, uh, and so a lot of that perception and hype is created through the media, created, you know, con- the constant barrage of who are the winners and who are the losers. And, you know, you have to really isolate yourself as a coach and, uh, and as a player to not listen to all that noise. And, and I, I don't mean to be derogatory about the media or anything, but that's just life, man. That's how it is. And we're on, everybody's under the microscope. So uh, it's, it's not an easy thing to deal with. And, and certainly the more you win, the more the pressure is. And you have to learn how to cope and deal with that. I did that well at times, and other times I didn't. Uh, and it's a lot easier for me to look back now, sitting in my office here, and talking about it. But when you're living that, and uh, y- you're sick. I mean, I can remember being sick to my stomach and literally being physically sick before games, you know, just because of all of that pressure that mounts up. And it, most of it was put on myself, <laughs> you know, and b- because of that winning. And so how you handle winning is, is really important. We've seen a lot of people, in, uh, especially coaches, that it's really taken a toll on their personal lives, on their marriages, on all the things that happen off the court. I mean, there's been many examples of, of what this game, and, and I'm not just talking about basketball, I'm talking sports in general at the collegiate and professional level. There is a great deal of pressure, and you have to be able to really have a sense of who you are and know who you are and whatever your faith is, whatever your beliefs are, whatever your philosophy is that uh, – the things that are really important in life, that's got to be where you go back to. And, you know, if you have a family and, you know, you may not always have a family. Maybe you're a single guy coaching and doesn't have extended family around them. Everybody needs a support system around them just to kind of deal with that. But it is, that's one of the really challenging things about coaching is that we don't enjoy the success as nearly as much as we should until maybe we're retired. Well, Steve, as always, we appreciate a few minutes. Thanks for uh, joining us, and we will talk to you again next week. Thanks, guys. Take care. There's our college basketball insider, Steve Cleveland. When we come back, what is trending? All the headlines are coming up on 97.5 and 1280 The Zone.